This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We'll start with what could be an awkward family gathering. And I'm not talking about a holiday dinner, but about the family of nations gathering next month in Poland to hammer out additional details of a global climate deal known as the Paris Agreement. The awkward part is that the United States intends to back out of the accord. Yet the U.S. will still send diplomats to the summit. There will also be private citizens like Paul Bodner. Three years ago, he helped the Obama team negotiate the Paris deal. This year, he'll return with the Rocky Mountain Institute, a clean energy think tank in Boulder. Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. In just a word or two, how would you describe the position the United States is in right now? Well, isolated, I think, is the word that comes to mind. Uh, The United States is the only country that has indicated that it will not support the Paris Agreement, although it is a party to that agreement today, because the way the agreement was designed, countries can't just withdraw from it on a whim. They have to have something of a cooling-off period, which actually lasts four years. So, in a twist of irony, if the Trump administration were to follow through on their announced intent to depart from this agreement, that would actually take effect the day after the 2020 presidential election. But apart from the United States, every country in the world, more than 190 countries have committed to move forward. And as you note, we'll be meeting in Poland to try to hammer out the detailed rulebook for that agreement. When you say every country in the world, I often think people invoke these particular countries, but that leaves us isolated from even the likes of like a North Korea and Iran? That's right. North Korea, Syria, every country is really on board with this because I think people recognize the existential threat that climate change poses. And they also recognize that after decades of trial and error, trying to formulate an international agreement that could actually help countries ratchet down their emissions over the course of the century, We've landed on a structure in the Paris Agreement that will work for all countries. And yet I suppose there are any number of people who might point to American exceptionalism and say, you know, this is the country pioneering a different route. Uh, What would you say to that view? Well, there's no doubt we've been a pioneer in the clean energy transition. That transition is happening and it's irreversible. You see signs of it everywhere, including in Colorado, where wind and solar is now cheaper than coal and Excel is shutting down coal-fired power plants. The question is really how fast can we do this? Because climate change is such a serious problem, we're not indifferent to the pace at which this energy transition happens. Now, the interesting wrinkle I would point out is the president has said, we will definitely withdraw from this agreement unless we can strike a better deal. And They've acknowledged that they're not going to renegotiate this agreement. There's no appetite for that in the international system. So you do wonder, what would be a better deal for the United States? And the answer could be that the U.S. could change its target under the agreement. Uh, We have a target for 2025 that was set by the Obama administration to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28% compared to 2005 levels by 2025 this administration could lodge a different target. And it had that option instead of declaring that it would withdraw. It still has that option. And many people believe that is still something that could happen before the magic date in 2020. Even perhaps at at Poland? 
No, I don't think there's any sign that that would happen in okay. Poland. But, you know, the question is, for example, how does this issue play in the president's re-election campaign? Does the Republican Party feel under any pressure to do something productive on climate policy? So that's the important asterisk in this story. Uh, what about the non-governmental players here? I, I note, for instance, cities like Boulder and companies like Aspen Skiing Company are doubling down on their efforts against climate change. Uh, what might we see from those kinds of players in Poland? Well, what was very interesting to see in the wake of President Trump's announcement about Paris last June was the upwelling of support for the Paris Agreement that came from U.S. states, cities, and businesses. And actually, they organized themselves into a coalition that projected to the international community uh, the message, we are still in. Can you give me an example of that? In other words, if, if you don't have Washington leading on this, what might a city or a state or a company do on their own? Most of the tools that are at our disposal as a society for addressing greenhouse gas emissions actually rest with companies and cities and states. That's not universally true, but cities control building codes, cities have set renewable energy targets, corporations can procure renewable energy, states, of course, um, set renewable energy portfolio standards, which uh, Governor-elect Polis has said he wants to see hit 100%. And if you like, the silver lining of the Trump administration's posture on climate has been to re-engage and re-empower these non-federal actors. The state, cities, and businesses that remain committed to Paris and are driving forward on these clean energy and emission targets actually account for more than half of the U.S. economy wow. and more than half the U.S. population. And if they were a country, they would be the third largest country in the world. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest from Boulder is Paul Bodner of the Rocky Mountain Institute. Three years ago, he helped the Obama administration negotiate the Paris climate deal. He'll be in Poland very soon for the next annual UN climate talks, in which more of the details of the accord will be hammered out. I just want to harken back to President Trump's visit to fire-ravaged California, uh, where the topic of climate change, of course, came up, and, and he was quoted as saying, we're going to have a great climate. What do you make of what you heard there? What, how do you characterize this administration? And do you think any of this science is making it through Look, this administration is closely tied to incumbent fossil fuel interests, and I'm not saying that in an activist sense, I'm just saying that as a fact. And if you own coal-fired power plants, for example, you are really worried right now, because it's not just the environmental pressure on coal that's a cause for concern for you, but more importantly, it's the economics. And the same is true for oil producers who are looking at the uh, explosion of electric vehicles and the fact that the, the car manufacturers whose products account for the majority of the use of their product, oil, are committing to an all-electric future. And so it's a perfectly rational response to that situation 
to try to intervene at the political level and ensure that you have an administration that's friendly to your interests. So that's part of the president's constituency. And the problem for him, I think, is even if you don't care about climate change, uh, if you're a consumer, if you're a customer for electricity in this country, and you're being asked to pay for the ongoing operation of coal-fired power stations, you're actually being asked to pay more out of your pocket than you would for clean energy. And that is an untenable situation economically, and I think it's also an untenable situation for the Republican Party politically as a party that espouses free market principles to say, actually, it may have been true 20 years ago that we needed to subsidize renewable energy, but we now would actually have to subsidize coal to keep it going. Speaking of coal, my understanding is that at this coming conference, the Trump administration is going to plan something of a sideshow presentation on the benefits of coal. Who's the audience for that? How do you understand this? Right. This is actually something they did last year in which we understand they're going to do some version of this year. So while U.S. diplomats are quietly in these negotiating rooms doing their best to construct a, a Paris rule book, the administration is organizing a side event focused on how clean coal and other clean fossil can contribute to the solution to climate change which of course strikes most people who actually go to these climate conferences as somewhat absurd because the the scientific evidence is very clear that a there really isn't such a thing as clean coal that's commercially viable now or in the near future and b clean energy is just plain cheaper than coal so why would you try to sort of bend over sort of twist yourself up in knots to make more expensive power and then very expensively uh, mitigate the greenhouse gas emissions when you can just throw up a solar plant or a wind farm. I think the audience for this is actually Washington. You know, I think the administration needs to show to its base that it's going to this UN climate conference and causing controversy by pitching coal at a climate conference, which is kind of like trying to sell cigarettes at a lung cancer convention. <laughs> Um, Do you plan to attend, Paul? And I, I wonder if you were there last year and sort of reflect on the environment of it. Uh, well, the, the the event was mobbed by environmental activists who got there early and then basically prevented the uh, U.S. delegates from speaking. They stood up, they chanted. So they expressed the absurdity of this site. Uh, but again, I think that all played quite well, I imagine, for the president's base uh, all the same. So if you think about the outcome of all that, look, they caused some controversy at a side event. Who cares? Meanwhile, U.S. diplomats did their job and contributed productively, which is what really matters. And so I think what you should watch for in uh, the middle of December when this conference concludes is have 190 seven countries, including the United States, agreed on this 100-year vision for exactly how the Paris Agreement will be implemented. And if the answer is yes, then I think all of us can uh, accept one noisy side event uh, about coal as the price of that. I wonder if we might wrap up on the personal, Paul. So this climate conference in Poland, I think, will be your ninth. And you experienced presumably the high of successfully negotiating the Paris Agreement and, I imagine for you, the low of the Trump administration's withdrawal. 
I wonder how you navigate the emotional roller coaster and, and perhaps what advice you'd have for people who themselves have an emotional investment in combating climate change. That's a great question. I take heart from what I see internationally as nations work to finalize the rulebook of the Paris Agreement. I, I, I like to use the analogy that when thinking about the role of the United States in the international system of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? When we are the good Dr. Jekyll, then we're working with the rest of the international community to construct systems like the Paris Agreement with a view to withstanding us when we turn into Mr. Hyde. So we've sort of turned into Mr. Hyde now and we're rattling that structure. And the good news is that that structure has withstood that force. Uh, this is a century-long project. And we have a framework now for completing that project and for allowing countries to make and keep commitments to ratchet down their emissions, for allowing businesses to get on board with that project and drive it instead of being dragged into it. And I don't think that one U.S. administration will derail that project. In fact, I think that it, it has been the best possible test of the integrity of that system which is what I would encourage others who care about climate change to keep their eyes on, which is the big picture and what countries around the world are doing. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Paul Bodner helped negotiate the Paris Climate Agreement under the Obama administration. He'll return to the annual UN Climate Talks in Poland, which start Monday. Bodner is a managing director of the Rocky Mountain Institute. It's a clean energy think tank in Boulder. You know the old line, one person's trash is another person's treasure? That is particularly true for archaeologists. And at Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, they've been rummaging through the garbage of General William Jackson Palmer. He's essentially the city's founder and started the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. Matt Mayberry is cultural services manager for the Springs. Matt, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. You actually came across this archaeological site Quite by accident, the city was doing flood mitigation after a big wildfire, and the city's archaeologist, I understand, identified the artifacts. How did you figure out that this stuff was connected to Palmer? Well, we it's a bit of a uh, detective mystery. Okay. Um, we did find a number of uh, whole objects. Uh, that alone is unusual in archaeology. Whole, whole objects like what? Whole bottles. Um, a lot of Worcestershire sauce okay. um, <laughs> bottles, which must have been uh, popular at the time. But what we were able to do was because these objects were in good condition um, and had clear maker's marks, um, identification of who created these things like Worcestershire bottles, um, we could make a connection between these materials and the nearby Glenary property, which was the estate of William Jackson Palmer. Glenary. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's important to transmit sure. to listeners that uh, Garden of the Gods is preserved now, but it wasn't always preserved. Of course. It's, yeah. a, it's a city park now, um, one of the most popular places in the state of Colorado for visitors to, uh, to go. But uh, yeah, um, that's, a, that's a modern uh, production. Um, but we were able to identify through some glazed tiles that would have been used in the construction of, of Glenary 
and actually track those glazed tiles back to trade publications in the early 1900s oh my goodness. that showed that they were being used at this property in Colorado Springs. Yeah, this is reminding me of history detectives. Exactly. Yeah, it's very much that. Um, batteries that were used to open and close the gates at Glen Erie were found in the trash. We also have whole, complete batteries preserved um, as part of historical collections. Um, and the evidence just began to pile up um, that was coming out of this trash pile um, that made it very clear this is General William Jackson Palmer's material. Fascinating. So was it essentially his landfill? It was. Okay. <laughs> um, he was a large property owner. He owned um, an estate that was primarily contained within a canyon, a box canyon. Um, you have to put your trash somewhere. <laughs> he put the trash at the edge of the canyon, just outside of the canyon in what is now um, our city park. Amazing to think that anyone would picture Garden of the Gods now as a place <laughs> to uh, place refuse. Uh, Michael Prouty is an archaeologist for Alpine Archaeology Consultants, which helped with the excavation at Garden of the Gods, and he described for us why this dig is so special. We have a chance, an opportunity, a very unique opportunity to actually examine the, the cultural remains and the material culture of this family to understand what it was like to live and to grow up and to work at Glen Erie and to have this kind of access to goods that also would end up becoming the kind of epitome for what other people as they were trying to emulate and to, to show wealth that like Palmer has established. I mean, Palmer was an elite. It was. Apparently, if you're an elite, you have lots of Worcestershire size. <laughs> so that's the first step you take if you want to emulate uh, folks like the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts, who were really in the same class, I think, as Palmer. Talk about what Palmer meant to Colorado, to the country. Well, as you mentioned, he founded Colorado Springs. He created the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, which was Colorado's railroad, and opened up Colorado for mining, for industrialization, for cattle ranching, and made those activities successful. Um, as he was creating the railroad, he identified Colorado Springs as a, as a lovely place to create a resort town, and it was the place where he established his own home. Okay. And, of course, out of that grows the Broadmoor, the Antlers, things like that. Correct, yes. Yeah. Um, so we are coming up on our 150th anniversary of the founding of Colorado Springs in 2021. We're preparing a new major exhibit on Palmer next year. This all comes together at a great time. So his trash will be a part of it. Absolutely it will. Okay. Yep. What was the effect of the, of the railroad on the rest of the country, on having a Colorado-specific railroad, as you say. Just help us understand the ripple effects of what he did here nationally. I think you have to understand Palmer as something of a geek. Um, huh. He's kind of a, um, in today's world, he would be an internet entrepreneur. He saw the railroads as a transformative tool that could create communities um, and transform the West. Um the West is is not possible without the linkages created by the railroads, at least as we see it. So. And he decided to make a home here himself. So he was sort of uh, living what he wanted others to do. Absolutely. Uh, the fancy term archaeologists use for like trash scatter like this is a midden. Midden. M-I-D-D-E-N. I was not familiar with this term. Correct. Uh, but I imagine that middens throughout time have actually clued us into a lot of the way people used to live. This is what archaeologists do, is they, they rummage through, they, they research and identify 
um, people's material that were left behind. Um, and trash is an important way for us to understand past cultures. Um, and so it may sound strange that we're so excited about trash, but for context, this trash is isolated to one family, one estate, and will give us a lot of information. I understand that evidence of alcohol consumption appears in this trash, Mm -hmm. and that at the time, Colorado Springs would have been a dry town. Palmer founded it as a dry community. You could not buy, sell, or consume alcohol in the city. So what's the story here? That's, um, it's, it will be a surprise, I think, for people who know Palmer that he had alcohol on the property. We found a beer bottle with remains in it and a cork in top of it. When you say remains in it, you mean beer? Um, we'll see what happens when we open it up and explore it. But It has to be uh, tested or uh-huh. something. Um, but we also know Palmer's idea about alcohol was about marketing the community and creating a, the community he wanted. It wasn't about being a, um, uh, absolutely against alcohol Teetotaler yes, type. Fascinating. And I, I do understand that some of this will be sent to labs for testing, so you might glean more information from absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks for being here, Matt. Absolutely Thank you. fascinating stuff. He's Matt Mayberry with the city of Colorado Springs. And we talked about an archaeological excavation at Garden of the Gods connected to railroad baron William Palmer. Some of what's been uncovered, as we said, will land next year in the Pioneers Museum in the Springs. Student loan debt continues to mount at a painfully fast rate. It has increased by more than 150 percent over the last decade. Some people graduate with so much student debt, it changes how they live their life, as CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus explains. Green Lady Gardens is like this verdant oasis from the concrete and bustle of Santa Fe Drive, just south of downtown Denver. The small space is packed with plants. Jessica Schatz started the store to fill a need. I felt like all the other houseplant stores were just kind of boring. They're all just white walls, kind of uninspiring. And I really like colors and I really like plants and plants and colors are in. So it's like my time. Dig a little deeper, and Schutz's story is shaped not necessarily by a love of plants, but by larger economic forces. She originally wanted to be a conservationist. She went to CU Boulder, and then to grad school in Montana. She was a Fulbright scholar studying in Mongolia when the Great Recession hit. I remember my dad calling me being like, things are really bad here, things are really bad. You know, and I'm, I'm like working in the countryside, I have no idea. I'm like, oh, it's fine. I'm going to have a degree. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to get the job of my dreams. And I came back and that was not the reality. And so things are very, very different than what I expected. She graduated into the worst job market since the Great Depression. Despite years of study and some impressive academic credentials, she couldn't find a job that matched her skills. And then there was the matter of loans, which created a constant sense of urgency. My student loans are almost as much as our mortgage every month. Yeah. She's had to work admin jobs to pay down some of the debt. A loan from her mom helped her buy a house. And when the lease came up for this spot on Santa Fe, she got a line of credit thanks to equity in the house and started the business. She says she hopes someday to get back to the environmental movement. Student loan debt is one of those things that sneaks up on many. Um, But yeah, there are some students who do not consider the impact of um, what they're borrowing until they're 
they're wrapping up their college education. That's Ben Wurzel, who runs the Money Sense program at CU Boulder, which helps students figure out their finances after graduation. Wurzel works with many students who are surprised how much and how long they'll be paying off their loans. He says in the vast majority of cases, higher education is worth the investment. The average debt load in Colorado is $27,000, which Wurzel says is manageable. It's when you start getting way above that and also when you start seeing um, six-figure debt loads that you want to be really careful about how much you're borrowing and think about how you're going to pay that back. That's easier to do if the degree is something like engineering or computer science. He says it's a little harder if the degree is in liberal arts. Ben Keyes is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies student loan debt. He says success with any degree is a matter of timing. And so it, it's really a function of, of bad luck or good luck. If you graduate into a good economy, there's going to be more plentiful jobs, better paying jobs, and it's going to be a lot easier to pay off your loans. Keyes says it's not surprising that many students graduate with little understanding of their future loan debt or how difficult it is to get that debt forgiven. It's out of sight, out of mind for most. He says there must be a greater effort to counsel students before they start to accumulate debt. And that states should help make higher education more affordable. And I think we need a much broader recognition that the big increases in tuition have really shifted the burden onto uh, younger and younger people. Um, and they really need our help when times are tough. And the payments on the loans are due just after graduation, when their earning potential is the lowest. He says this debt can delay home ownership, marriage, and other life milestones. Jessica Schutz's timing in the job market was terrible. Her loan debt, it's high. But that didn't slow her down. It just altered her trajectory. I don't know, the Great Recession, then coming back to student loans and just having to have that necessity of how do I make it work and be happy. She could have just continued to toil at jobs she hated to pay the loans back and been bitter. But that's not really in my nature. <laughs> Instead, she found a new passion, selling houseplants. But she readily admits she's fortunate to have a supportive family and husband. Other graduates are not so lucky. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. In her 14 years as an ER nurse, Lori McCormick has witnessed a lot of tragedy. Here she is in a video from the State Patrol. An incident that sticks with me in my mind is a teenage girl who had um, decided to send a text message to her mom real quick because she was running late home. And when she looked up, she rear-ended the back of a trailer. And she ended up by losing her life that night. Being the mom of a teenage daughter, it's just something that I think about every day. McCormick tells her story as part of a new social media campaign from the patrol about how first responders are affected by what they witness every day. The series is called Hidden Scars, and it's gotten thousands of views on Facebook and YouTube. Lori McCormick is here, along with trooper Josh Lewis, who came up with the idea. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Lori, after seeing a teenager killed by texting and driving, I understand you were in an accident in which the other driver was texting and driving. That's correct. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, it was about five years ago. I was uh, taking my kids home from school supply shopping, and we were rear-ended by a texting driver. And uh, at first, I thought it was kind of no big deal, just a little minor fender bender. And turned out that I ended up by having to have a spine fused after that accident. So it's definitely something that stuck with me forever and something I'm going to live with forever. Yeah. And you live already with the memory of that of that teenage girl. Yes, I do. Who came into the ER. Mm -hmm. Did you know that it was going to happen? I, I often think when I look in my rearview mirror, 
gosh, is that person going to stop in time? Yep. I, it was stop and go traffic. And I had seen him kind of getting really close to me a couple of times because I noticed he was texting on his phone. And the last time he didn't stop in time. I wonder how you feel now with the experiences you've described when you see someone texting on the road. Definitely brings up a lot of frustration within me, for sure. Yeah. You've seen the effects of that, and you've experienced them firsthand. I have. So, Josh, I mentioned that videos like Lori's are part of this campaign, Hidden Scars, uh, which features first responders, so cops, medical folks, uh, even, I understand, a prosecutor telling their stories. Why feature first responders? Uh, Well, there's kind of two parts to the video series itself. And the first part is we want people to have an understanding, have that kind of concept of personal responsibility, to understand that their actions, so often we hear that, well, it only affects me. It doesn't affect anybody else. And that's simply not true. Give me another example of that beyond texting and driving. And we've seen it multiple times with people who say, well, if I don't wear a seatbelt, it's nobody's, nobody's problem but my own. It doesn't affect anybody else until it does. Until we are the people going to the homes late at night, early morning, saying your loved one's not coming home because of because of this. Uh, the family members themselves, obviously, uh, the people who get stuck in traffic, the first responders that are going to that scene who are actually paying attention. It af- always will affect more than just you. That's fascinating. So you want to tell the story of the ripples from an accident, f- from not wearing your seatbelt. And I suppose what change behavior is that fundamental to this? You know, ultimately, that's what we're going for. We we want people to essentially voluntarily comply to save their own lives, to put their own lives in their own hands, not be reliant upon anybody else, but do the things that they know are going to keep them safe, to buckle up, to drive sober, to not drive distracted. To not text and drive. I have to say, since watching your video as part of Hidden Scars, I have really rethought my behavior uh, texting and driving i you know what i'm i think what i'm doing is admitting on the air that i've done it and that uh, my goodness this is a reminder that it can change lives so the first video in your series features a douglas county sheriff's official whose partner died when their patrol car was hit by a drunk driver let's listen to sheriff's lieutenant chris washburn i spent a lot of time concerned that our troops are going to be injured or killed while they're out conducting traffic stops or doing accident investigations. My hidden scar is worry. I wonder, Josh, if this speaks to the second goal you have for the campaign, that word hidden scars. Isn't that part of the problem that first responders often keep this stuff hidden, their reactions to accidents, to death? And you're exactly right. This is the second part that we're trying to reach is for all first responders who are going to be either featured or be a part of it, be able to view these and to understand that it's okay to be a human being. It's okay to have these feelings, have these emotions. Uh, We're very often considered the professionals on scene. We, We can't show any emotion. We can't have it. Uh, And it's simply not true. We're still human beings. It's still going to affect us. We each have our own stories that will live with us forever. Do you experience that as a nurse, that same idea that uh, you can't let the cracks show? Absolutely. Actually, I was just researching that about 33 percent of all emergency room nurses suffer some sort of PTSD. And I think that that's... Say the percentage again. 33 percent. 33 percent. A third of nurses experience PTSD. Exactly. Because we do see, just like Officer Lewis was saying, we do see the other side of the accident and things that get brought into us in the emergency room. And that's stuff that we just can't unsee, unfortunately. So we do have to hold that, that persona that we're strong individuals when we're dealing in the situation and with the case. 
But a lot of times the nurses do have that human emotion reaction after afterwards. I have to think that that leads to burnout for a lot of nurses. Absolutely. And probably is the same in the patrol. Do you see that? Uh, we see it across the first responder profession. And there's absolutely no shame in it and having and being affected by it. Our ultimate goal with these is to make sure people realize there is help available. Uh, if this is not the job for you, that's absolutely okay too. But we want people who are good employees, good workers, to be able to have a lifelong career for it. Okay, so the audience for this is the general public. It is also other first responders. I guess I want to speak to whether there are the resources in your respective professions when you're feeling down, when you're feeling depressed, when you need to talk it out. Do you have enough of a place to turn? Let's talk in the healthcare profession First off, I, I know personally with my company, we do have resources available to us, but a lot of times it's having the ability as that individual to say, I need help and to be able to admit that it's gone too far for you to just be able to hold it in for a certain case. Um, and so to wait, be able just to the challenge of speaking up. Exactly. Because we are held to that expectation that we have to keep a, a straight face and a brave face whenever we're dealing with these difficult situations. Yeah. And so what do you think is in the way of someone speaking up? Because I think their fear is going to be, oh, they're going to think I'm a softie and I'm not cut out for this. Isn't that the fundamental fear? Exactly. Yeah. How, just, how do you overcome that? I just I feel like this is something that first responders have been grappling with for as long as the profession I, has been exactly. around. So I'm not sure, sure we're going to solve it here today. But I'd love to have you reflect on what it takes to go, you know what? I should speak up. I think just making ourselves aware of taking care of ourselves too, that we are human beings and that we do need to care for ourselves. Even though we care for everybody else in the community, we have to take care of ourselves too, because if we aren't taking care of ourselves, we can't take care of others. And so if you got into the profession because you are selfless and you did it for the patients, Mm -hmm. then just remind yourself, taking care of yourself is taking care of the patients. Exactly. How would you respond to that from, say, the patrol point of view. Yeah, and it's very similar. We have the official resources, if you would like to call them that, uh-huh. that anybody can go. They can reach out and do it uh, in a variety of ways. We have the quote-unquote unofficial ones, a peer resource network. And that's largely the the best way that we can help one another. Just talking to someone else on the patrol. Exactly. Even even outside of the patrol, having, you know, Lori as a friend, having other first responders oh. in numerous professions, we understand what the other person is going to be able to go through. Being able to talk about it, just have that listening ear. And it sounds like they can go up to Josh Lewis. He's not going to turn them away. Exactly. And, and we have that basic understanding that we need to help one another. Josh Lewis is state trooper and public information officer with the patrol. Lori McCormick manages the emergency room at Centennial Medical Plaza. And the patrol's new social media campaign is called Hashtag Hidden Scars. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. History is littered with defunct record stores. Think Sam Goody, Tape World, Tower Records. But in Denver, Wax Tracks has survived. It's been a staple since the 70s. CPR's Alexandra McMahon took a walk down memory lane with the owners, who've been running it for 40 years now. Even moving to their current location is a story in and of itself. Well, start over here. We took over this building. When was it, Dwayne? We got into the corner store in 78. And then we got this space 
probably early 80s. It had been a woman who had a needle craft store. She was very nice, kind of an earth mother hippie. <laughs> and uh, one day a couple of guys, one of them chased the other one into the store here where she was at. They had a big fight. She was yelling and screaming. They ran back outside, and one of them shot the other one in the alley right here. And she closed up about a week later, and then we took it over. So well, that kind of gives you an idea what the neighborhood might have been like in those days in 78. It's more of a shopping area now instead of a shooting-each-other area. <laughs> I'm Dave Stidman, co-owner of Wax Tracks Records. Been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> I'm Dwayne Davis, co-owner of Wax Tracks, and uh, yeah, 40 years. Dave and Dwayne are sitting in a very dark, cramped basement. The space is filled with boxes of overstock that they don't have room for upstairs. Dave mentions that in the early days, he used to live in the back room of the basement. That was, of course, after he and Dwayne decided to make a big career change. Dwayne and I used to work together at... Uh, Jefferson County Social Services. And he was my favorite guy there because he would talk about music, which is like, that was my main interest in life. We were at the annual Jefferson County Juvenile Probation Chili and Beer Blowout uh, out in a park in Golden. And Dave and I had both had a couple of beers. Um, We were standing there and Dave says, hey, let's get a record store. And I said, well, open another beer and let's do it. <laughs> you know. And a couple of months later, uh, indeed, Dave had uh, talked with uh, Jim and Danny, and uh, they liked him. They liked the way he knew music and the way he responded to music. We thought, well, this, uh, this might be the right thing to do because uh, social services was a meat grinder job, and We were getting tired of saving kids and decided we'd rather corrupt them. The two people Dwayne mentioned, Jim Nash and Danny Flesher, were the original owners of Wax Tracks. They opened the store in 1974, hoping to expose Denver to music it had never heard before. Then they decided to sell it four years later to launch the Wax Tracks record label. They were very knowledgeable about that music, and so that's what they carried, and they wanted hoping that we would kind of carry on that same tradition. Not only did the original owners leave behind a tradition of selling niche records, but they also left behind some famous regulars, like Jello Biafra, the former lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. And Jello Biafra is, has been a longtime friend and customer of the store since day one. He used to shop at Wax Tracks when it was the old owners, Jim and Danny. When they left, they, they told Dave that we were inheriting uh, $100 in new stock and Jello Biafra. <laughs> we, we sold all the stock, but we still got Jello. In the basement, Dave and Dwayne point out various objects, relics of decades past, like an old cash register covered in stickers. Dwayne says despite its appearance, it is not the store's original register. The first register we had must have weighed 100 pounds, was about this much taller, but it got uh, taken out in the first car crash into wax tracks, uh, of which we've had numerous, being on the corner of 13th and Washington. Aside from cars smashing through their store, taking out stock, business was good for Dave and Dwayne, until it wasn't. 
at the turn of the century, we, we hit bottom. The age of CDs and the Internet hit wax tracks hard. And then around 2003, we noticed a vague uptick in the sale of vinyl. And vinyl was supposed to be dead, and nobody was supposed to be carrying it, and we had never not had one store dedicated to vinyl. And the next year, well, it happened again, and we didn't have to borrow money. And by 2008, I would say that we started to get confident that that this wasn't just uh, an, an anomaly that had occurred and was going to disappear. And it's safe to say the vinyl boom isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Last month, Forbes reported that 2017 saw more than $700 million in vinyl record sales. And for wax tracks, after 40 years, there never seems to be a shortage of music lovers willing to spend the day sifting through endless record stacks. Yeah, on a Saturday afternoon, pretty busy in here. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Over the years, some pretty weird stuff has come out of those record stacks. We asked owners Dave and Dwayne to pick four of the strangest songs they've run across. The first is locally grown and features the beat poet Allen Ginsberg. I understand he's backed by a Denver punk band? Yes, he is. A band called the Gluons. The Gluons? The microscopic uh, atomic particles. Okay. How in the heck does Allen Ginsberg front a punk song? Well, he was up at the Naropa Institute and uh, hooked up with Mike Chappelle, who was in that band, the Gluons, and they hit it off, and Mike wanted to put a single out, so he approached us, and we said, sure, why not? You had a record label, Wax Tracks did at the time. Well, this was the first record that we ever put out, so it was an experiment that uh, went awry many times. (laughs) Bird brain runs the world. ultimate product of capitalism. He could not sing. He had two voices, his Jewish whiner and the voice of God. And for Bird Brain, the song on this, he uses his Jewish whiner voice to very good effect, but he had no sense of timing. And Mike would have to stand like one foot in front of him and wave his hands to let him know when he had to come in for the uh, lyrics. Did this sell? Not real well. (laughs) (laughs) Has it uh, it become valuable now in the age of eBay, etc.? Well, not really. It'll go for about ten. Ten bucks. Yes. Okay. Your next track is called "Red Temple Prayer." two-headed dog. Uh, Who is this, and why did you pick it? Dwayne, I think you picked it, but I I love it as well, and it is uh, Rocky Erickson from the 13th Floor Elevators. The 13th Floor Elevators. Yes. Now, that was a 60s psychedelic band that had some great records. Unfortunately, Rocky did a little too much LSD, so he ended up in an insane asylum. Oh, my in and out, I think, a few times. And, and this record is one after he got out. 
after he gets out of an asylum. Yes. And at that time, he was trying to uh, get a notary public to certify that he was being visited by aliens. He has a super great screaming voice. It's very effective in this kind of songs that he sings. Now, this one does have more value, I think, than the Gluons. Yes, uh, I would think so. It, it sells probably $50 in the $50. Yeah. This prompted me to Google two-headed dog. Mm. Don't do that. <laughs> well, the song lyrics draw on a uh, actual Soviet scientist experiments where they tried to put a dog's head on the neck of another living dog. This is exactly why I said don't Google this, because <laughs> images of this gruesome experiment come up. So this was a song inspired by that actual procedure. It, it yes. worked for a time, by the way. Yes, There's it a did. sort of small dog appended to a large dog. Yeah, it mm. was... It was pretty horrifying, but Rocky was obsessed with this kind of imagery with zombies and aliens and all kinds of very strange things. Now, it is the music video to this next song, a track called Lightning Strikes, that I think is really remarkable. It's a cover by Klaus Nomi, who looks like something otherworldly to me. Well, he he was a, a German and much influenced by David Bowie and the whole uh, Spiders from Mars era uh, glam rock. How would uh, you describe his style? Mock opera. Mock opera. Well, he he was very flamboyant and had quite a flamboyant lifestyle, which uh, played him bad in the end. Uh, he died pretty young, but he made quite a splash for a while. There are still people who come in the store and and love his music. Listen to me, baby. You got to understand. You're old enough. To learn the makings of a man Listen to me, baby It's time to settle down Am I asking too much for you to stick around? Every boy wants a girl He can trust to the very end Baby, that's you Won't you stay? But till then Do you think that his look was better than his music? Do you think that he was equally as talented a musician as he was a sort of aesthete? Well, I'm sorry to say something that would offend his fans, but uh, almost anything would be better than his actual music talent, in, in my opinion. We chose this because it is fairly memorable. Uh, once you hear it, it's difficult to get it out of your ear. You describe your next selection as the ultimate room clearer for the party you want to end. There's not going to be much of a show after this, but uh, <laughs> what, what have you chosen? Well, the, the legendary Stardust Cowboy singing uh, or, or performing Paralyzed. Now, wait, you almost said singing and then you corrected yourself. Well, it's, it's not really singing. It's more sort of yelping. Yelping? Yes. Yeah, 
This yes. is from 1968. Yes. Now, I found the uh, uh, first copy I ever had was I found in a thrift store. I used to dig around thrift stores looking for rockabilly singles. So I'd pick anything that's, and I had never heard the song, So, but I picked it because I thought it might be rockabilly. And so I got it home, tried it out, and I was surprised to hear what it was. I, I have to admit, I do find it enjoyable, but most of anyone else that I played have played it for uh, clears the room immediately and doesn't want to hear any more. Thank you uh, for trying, but that's that's not uh, that's awful. What could you possibly find to like about this? I think the oddity of it and the uniqueness. You know, I don't like common rock very much, but that was a record that uh, was. I've never heard anything like it. She's like the anti-James Taylor. Possibly, yes. I would. I don't think James <laughs> would do a song like that, no. Thanks for being with us, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you for introducing these records to the public. <laughs> Have we cleared the... Are you still there? I hope so. You heard Dave Stidman and Dwayne Davis... They own Wax Tracks Records in Denver. They're celebrating their 40th anniversary this year with the store. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Well,